1866, a gruesome murder on a rural farm in the centre of Scotland shocked the local community. With little clues to go on outside of a bloody axe, a boiled egg and a missing door key, the police would eventually be left to relax. The police. In 1866, a gruesome murder on a rural farm in the centre of Scotland shocked the local community. With little clues to go on outside of a bloody axe, a boiled egg and a missing door key, the police would eventually be left having to rely heavily on a string of unreliable testimony to do their job. A factor that would go some way in creating what would wind up as Scotland's longest-running cold case. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, Season 7, Episode 6. Today I've just got a couple of quick things to mention. First up, I want to give a belated happy birthday shout-out to listener Veronica, I hope you had a great birthday. And secondly, uh, a quick heads up to Patreon members. Uh, There'll be a new live stream coming soon with a pretty interesting guest. So I'm going to be posting about that on Patreon. I know not everyone sort of checks the Patreon that often. So I just wanted to give a quick heads up here to let you know that uh, if you are a member and you are interested in bonus material like sort of like live streams like that, uh, you may want to keep an eye on the Patreon page just over the next sort of week or so, because I'll drop a little bit more information about that there. But yes, otherwise, let's just crack on with this week's episode. This one's called The Mount Stewart Farm Murder Mystery. Situated on the banks of the River Tay in central Scotland, Perth is a small city with a population of around 50,000. The de facto capital of Scotland until the 13th century, its history as a settlement dates back as far as the prehistoric era, with its central location making it a perfect trade hub for the wider area, and evidence exists of merchants from as far away as France and Spain making their way to the old city along the river to sell silks and pottery in the early medieval period. Later developing into a thriving market town, Routine agricultural fairs had been established since as far back as the 15th century, helping it to morph into the industrial and agricultural hub it would become during the Industrial Revolution, as linen, leather and whisky were exported via boats and eventually trains when the railway arrived in 1848, further facilitating it in its role as the centre for the vast swathes of agricultural farmland that surrounded it. Prior to the 1860s, the farms around Perth were a relatively prosperous way for tenant farmers to make a living. With many working long-term leases, the farmers transformed the Scottish agricultural landscape as cattle and crop fields thrived. In 1865, however, farming across the British Isles was struck by an epidemic of the Rinderpest Plague, a viral cattle disease with a high transmission and mortality rate. Farmers struggled to find effective cures, with many folk medicines recommended in panic discussions throughout the local taverns, from chloroform and caustic ammonia to whiskey and arsenic, all of which were much more likely to help the mortality rate than hinder it. The government, meanwhile, was busy laying out measures to clamp down on trade, which did little else aside from disrupting the farmers' incomes with futile attempts to stop the spread of the virus. All around the country, farmers were set for a difficult few years. An anxious sense of foreboding swept across county borders and bled out to the rural outskirts, reaching all the way to Mount Stewart Farm, 
a 65-acre tenancy midway between the villages of Forgandeni and Bridge of Erne, a few miles south of Perth. Waist-high hedgerows and cobblestone walls lined a narrow road that carved through endless fields connecting the two villages, forking off along a dirt track that led up to the farm, neatly tucked in the shadow of the east side of a large hill, shielding it from view from the main road. With only very little foot traffic passing by the farm to use the private track that ran behind the main farmhouse, life on Mount Stewart was generally quiet, with a keen sense of rural isolation. It was an atmosphere that suited the farmer, William Henderson, but it was an atmosphere that was soon to be turned upside down. William Henderson was a big man at 5 foot 11. At 50 years old, he had been working on Mount Stewart Farm for almost 20 years, growing oats, barley, turnips and potatoes, as well as keeping cattle and pigs. Born in the nearby village of Antully, nine miles north up the road from Perth, he was the second eldest child of Andrew and Janet Henderson, with three sisters. In 1843, his mother had died of a heart disease, and two years later, he took over the care of the farm in a joint tenancy with his father. The pair worked the land, made modest renovations to the two-storey large-block farmhouse, and maintained the U-shaped outbuilding that made up the barn, stable, storage and animal sheds. The farm looked humble enough, but the pair were able to make a comfortable living, and they employed a handful of labourers and domestic servants to help with the work both in the farmhouse and on the farm itself. Andrew Henderson chose not to remarry after his wife's death, and William had never found himself interested in settling down with a wife full stop, so the domestic hands made a welcome addition to daily life. Life was made significantly more difficult for William six years after moving to the farm when his father Andrew passed away from influenza leaving William with £164 worth of assets and the sole lease of the farm. Working alone was challenging at times, but the farm was productive enough to allow William to bring in seasonal labourers to help when it was necessary, and William's eldest sister, Janet, whose five daughters had all grown up and moved out of home, still lived in Antully and would lend a helping hand when things got too much for William to handle alone. This was a great relief to William, who found himself working through domestic servants at a quick rate as he struggled to get along with all that was sent to him via the agency in Perth. Like every other farm in the country, the cattle plague had seen a cloud of anxiety fall over Mount Stewart, but William carried on regardless. In the autumn, he had employed a labourer, the 44-year-old James Crichton, to help on a six-month contract and allowed the man with his family to take up residence in the nearby Lynn Lear cottages that nestled just off the dirt track leading up to the farm. By March, his contract was drawn to a close, which was about time, as far as William was concerned, as the two men had not got along particularly well. In recent weeks, William had been forced to sack his latest housemate, Christina Miller, after she had continued to act inappropriately around the farm, including making uncomfortable remarks to William about his lack of a wife. Things reached a head after she had spent a night sleeping in the barn following her late return from Perth, where she found herself locked out of the farmhouse. William had heard the knocking at the kitchen door, but he hadn't been too keen to open up the farmhouse late at night recently. That January had seen him become the victim of a break-in that had rocked his confidence and brought home the isolation of the farm when he was alone. At the time of the break-in, he had been out in Perth to collect some grain for the farm, but he had returned to a smashed window, and inside, the small wooden money chest in his bedroom had been forced open with the burglar making off with around three pounds and change, a shirt and a pair of trousers. 
William's relationship with Crichton quickly soured after the break-in, with William suspecting that the labourer was the culprit, and they had gone from bad to worst after Crichton had threatened to hit William during his argument with Catherine Miller as he dismissed her from his service. With neither men in a position to terminate the contract early, the farmer and the labourer were begrudgingly working together with no other living thing to break the ice, aside from the grey farm dog that tracked at their feet. Thankfully, William had visited his sister Janet in Antully earlier in the week to ask her to come and help out on the farm. He had a cow that was heavily pregnant and due any day soon, and the house was falling into the mess that it always did when William had no servant to clear up after him. Janet had agreed to come down at the end of the week and stay until William could secure a new domestic maid, which would have been a welcome respite for all from the stony atmosphere that had built up around the farm. Janet stepped off the train in Perth on Wednesday the 28th of March and met William, who made his way to the station with the horse and cart in order to drive her back to the farm. Upon their arrival, Janet found that in less than a week she already had plenty of work to do, despite the farmhouse's relatively small size. The ground floor consisted of three large rooms, including the kitchen and William's bedroom, with the rooms largely mirrored on the floor above, which is where Janet made up her bed in the smaller visitor's bedroom. On the morning of Friday the 30th of March, two days after Janet's arrival, William woke up and had breakfast in the kitchen before stepping out into the fields to speak with Crichton about the work for the day. William was planning to head into Perth to catch the market and he instructed Crichton to spend the day removing the fence posts dividing two fields and then ploughing the whole area. Afterwards, he took one of the horses out of the stable, attached it to the cart and headed off down the hill, passing Lindley Cottages and onto the main road, heading east towards Bridge of Urn. Once there, he turned north and continued straight on to Perth. The city would have been relatively busy, given the market, and the streets and taverns would have been buzzing with activity, as farmers came from all around the surrounding area to buy livestock, supplies, and catch up over a few drinks. William managed just about all three, purchasing a pig at auction and a quantity of fertiliser before heading to the tavern, where he spent several hours. At 5pm, and with the bulk of the day having passed over the city, he stepped back out into his cart and rode back down to Bridge of Urn, where he stopped off to purchase some slate that he planned to use to fix the roof of the farmhouse, and then headed back west towards the farm as twilight fell. William arrived back on the farm around 7pm, just in time to meet up with Crichton, who was already around the outbuildings, packing up after the long day. As William pulled the horse up, he called over to Crichton and asked him to give him a hand taking the pig to the piggery and offload the fertiliser whilst he set about putting the horse back in the stable. When all the work was finally done, Crichton headed back down the road towards his home in the cottages and William locked up the outbuildings and headed to the kitchen door. As he turned the handle, he realised, much at the same time, that both the door had been locked and that there didn't appear to be any lamps lit on the ground floor. Pushing the door again and calling out to Janet, he stepped back and thought for a second. Janet had mentioned that morning that she may head to Perth herself to meet their uncle, or failing that, she may just be asleep in her bedroom upstairs. But she might have left the door unlocked, he thought to himself, with a slight grumble. He turned and walked back down the track towards Linley to ask Crichton if he had any idea where his sister had gone. It turned out to be a wasted journey. Crichton had no idea where Janet had gone. In fact, He said he hadn't even realised it was William's sister and had just assumed that she was his new maid. 
He had seen her talking to a man at the kitchen door around 11am, he said, but after that he hadn't seen anyone for the rest of the day. William backed up to the farmhouse and stepped into the barn to retrieve a ladder. With little other choice, he would have to break into his own house. He placed the ladder up against the rear wall of the farmhouse, balancing it next to the window that would have been Janet's bedroom. Fairly sure that it would be unlocked and he'd be able to slide it open and clamber inside, he made his way up the rickety steps, forced the window up and collapsed through the narrow opening into the dark room. As far as he could tell, he was alone. At least, if Janet was asleep, she hadn't woken at the sound of the clumsy intrusion. Standing up, William began making his way through the dim house, reaching out to feel his way through the corridors and down the stairs to the landing on the ground floor. Gingerly, he stepped forward into the kitchen. Able to make out the back door from the dull globe out by the embers in the fireplace, he headed over to unlock it and push it open to allow the moonlight in, tripping on a pile of linen as he went. Looking down, he could see the bedclothes had been dragged out from the small bed that sat in the corner of the kitchen that was used by the housemaid when there was one on the farm. Reaching the back door, he felt for the large iron lock and fingered around, looking for the key. Except it wasn't in the lock. Now things really were starting to feel unusual. The key was never removed, and it should have been there, unless Janet had removed it and hung it somewhere. Turning back into the room, he tripped once more on the object on the floor. Leaning down, he picked up one of the wooden kitchen chairs and placed it back upright against the wall. Allowing his eyes to grow accustomed to the dark, he began to make out more objects scattered across the floor. Another chair had fallen over by the fireplace and was on its side, and there in the middle was the large bundle of rags that he had tripped on. With an ominous feeling in his stomach, he made out beneath the pile a large dark stain as his nose was hit with a faint, sweet, metallic smell of burning copper. Pulling back the sheets on the floor, he uncovered the body of Janet, lying on her back, her hair a matted mess soaked in blood. He stumbled backwards through the house and out into the courtyard and made his way quickly to Lindley Cottages, where he hammered on the door of Jamie Barlas, the neighbour of Crichton, who also resided in one of the cottages with his wife and two sons. All four of them were eating supper at the table when Jamie opened the door to the stunned-looking farmer, who blurted out that his sister had been killed and that he needed help back up at the farm. Concerned, he took off immediately, following William back up the hill and into the farmhouse. Once they stepped into the kitchen, breathless, the carnage was more obvious. Blood had spattered up the walls, and when Jamie bent over to the body of Janet to check that she was dead, he realised that there was little need to check for a pulse. The pair headed back out of the house and into the courtyard, where they met with Barlas's wife, eldest son, and Crichton. His wife and son had gone round to the labourers to enlist his help as they had followed the two men up to the farm. In what was a flurry of organisation, Crichton took off towards the village of Forgandeni to alert the police, whilst William headed to Bridge of Urn, where he could call upon the doctor and the police. When Crichton arrived at the station in Forgandeni, he met with Constable Rowley and explained the situation up at the farm. Rowley noted that Crichton was unusually calm given the news that he was delivering, which he perhaps rather dangerously for William, embellished with his own conclusions, telling the officer that the farmer had killed his sister. The pair he went on were none too fond of one another and had a bit of history. Rowley set off with Crichton immediately. Meanwhile, in the Bridge of Urn, William was knocking at the door of Dr James Lang. Unfortunately, the doctor wasn't home, 
He'd been in Edinburgh for the day, though his wife reassured William that he would be home shortly and that he had a driver already waiting for him at the station where he was due aboard the 9.20 train. William chose to head over to the station himself to meet the doctor as he arrived, stopping off at the small, one-storey police station, more akin to a quaint rural cottage than any hub of crime-fighting prowess. There he explained the situation to Constable Alexander Cumming, who thought the farmer was understandably quite agitated. The pair made their way to the station, arriving just after 9pm, and William scribbled a note to the Procurator Fiscal in Perth, a man whose job was very similar to a coroner, to alert him to the death and request his help. Dear sir, please come out here as soon as possible, as my sister has been murdered today whilst I was in Perth. Your obedient servant, W. Henderson. Scrawled on a British railway company memo, he handed the note to someone at the station to hand over to the authorities in Perth and then waited for the 9.20 train to arrive with the doctor aboard. Despite his long journey, Dr. Lang was remarkably professional about being pounced on on the train platform and all three men hopped into his waiting cart and rode straight back to the farm, arriving in time to meet with Crichton and Constable Rowley in the courtyard. By now, the kitchen had been lit by a dim candlelight, which allowed the doctor to make an initial cursory inspection and confirm that Janet was in fact dead. Crichton offered to go and fetch more candles whilst everyone waited for the Perth crew to show up shortly before 1am, to start what would go on to be a very long night. As it turned out, the procurator fiscal was away dealing with another previous case, so his deputy, John Young, arrived with several police officers and criminal investigators. Until the circumstances could be properly established, William Henderson, James Crichton and Jamie Barlas were all asked to remain in the parlour until they could be questioned, whilst the rest of the house was searched for any obvious clues or evidence. The kitchen, now somewhat better lit by the warm glow of a handful of candles, was clearly in a state of some disarray. Chairs were tipped over, drawers were removed or left hanging out, all of the bedding from the small bed in the corner of the room had been pulled out and left lying across the floor, and when police moved it, they found the remains of a smoking pipe underneath, broken into several pieces, the bowl of which had been stamped with the maker's name G and A Kane. The scene was made infinitely more macabre by the bloodstains that were all across the room. A large pool had collected beneath Janet's body, whilst spatter cast up the walls and footprints smeared across the ground all around the fireplace. Janet's boots had been removed, seemingly after her death, and were placed by the small bed, similarly covered in blood. A pot of water hung over the fireplace, its embers low in the grate, with a boiled egg bobbing in the warm water its shell discarded and scattered around the floor. Next to the fireplace, an axe stood, propped up against the wall, covered in blood and human hair that matched the colour of Janet's. After seeing the devastation, Young sent a message to his senior, John McLean, and requested his help as soon as he returned to Perth, along with the help of another doctor, George Webster Absalon, and the chief constable, George Gordon. By sunrise, The farm was now a hive of activity, and though daylight made things much easier to see in the cramped farmhouse, the police were no less in the dark. Crichton, William and Jamie Barlas had all been given an initial interview, and Barlas had been sent home, the police realising his presence on the farm was entirely incidental. Crichton and William were still suspects to a degree, 
though Chief Constable Gordon's initial thoughts were that Crichton was far too calm to have been the killer and that William was obviously in a fairly severe state of shock. Both were asked to strip down to their underwear and had their clothing inspected, though no signs of blood or anything untoward were found. The motive was equally as unclear, and though everything seemed to suggest a burglary of some kind, there were suspicions that the upturning of the house could have been a tactical misdirection on the part of the killer. William's bedroom had suffered a ransacking, much like the kitchen, and several drawers and chests had been forced open and had their contents either removed or thrown about. A small cash box with a one-pound note and a few coins in change was missing, as well as a set of William's clothing. But at the same time, a silver watch had been left behind that had been sitting right on top of one of the four straws, though William did admit later that the watch was perhaps not of the best quality. Whilst the house was being searched, architect David Smart measured the rooms and drew up plans of the layout, including all the furniture. At 9am, Sheriff Barclay arrived with the Procurator Fiscal proper, who had a warrant for the doctors to fully examine Janet's body. In the cold light of the morning, she was lifted up onto the kitchen table and given a complete post-mortem. Wounds were found around her right ear, including a slash that almost cut off her earlobe that led to a deep one-inch cut just behind her ear. The skin around her left eye and temple showed signs of discoloration and there were several wounds on the top of her head, suggesting that she had been hit several times with a heavy object, shattering her temporal bone in the process and causing her death, which the doctors estimated would have been no later than 6pm and much more likely between 2 and 3pm. The time of death largely exonerated William, providing his alibi could be confirmed, and so the police immediately began their door-to-door knocking, questioning the locals on whether anyone had seen a stranger in the area on the day of the murder. With so many farms surrounding Mount Stewart, a sweep of the local barns and outbuildings was ordered at the same time. At midday, Janet's husband arrived at the farm, accompanied by his brother-in-law Peter and his daughter Mary. In their grief, they were given the unappealing task of cleaning the blood from the kitchen, whilst Janet lay on the table, freshly patched up from her post-mortem examination. Curiously, even once the kitchen had been righted, it was noted by police that the key to the back door had still not been found, leading most to conclude that the killer must have locked the kitchen door and taken off with the key after. News from the door-to-door knocking was slowly filtering back, and there were several reports of a hawker having been hanging around the vicinity on the morning of the murder named Betsy Riley, a well-known earthenware saleswoman who had taken up hawking after her husband had been forced to quit work through illness. The police tracked her down at home in a small back street of Perth and took her into the Procurator Fiscal's office for questioning. Betsy admitted freely that she'd been out selling and she had passed by the farm on her rounds. Disappointingly for the police, she said that she didn't bother to stop and knock at Mount Stewart as she had crossed paths with William that morning as he was heading out on the road to Perth and so she figured he would not have been home. When she was told about the murder, she wasted no time in delving into gossip, saying that she wasn't overly surprised and that William had a bit of a reputation with his servants as a bit of a sex pest. She told police that she had actually seen Janet outside the house talking to an unrecognised man at the door with a dog who she assumed was another hawker. As the tone of the conversation hadn't sounded threatening, she hadn't really given it too much thought and so she hadn't really paid any attention to the situation and had not gotten a good look at the man's face. Though, conversely, she said she would be able to identify him if she saw him again. 
and gave a description of him being around five foot eight, wearing a dark shooting coat, dirty moleskin trousers and a dark cloth cap with a leather peak. Overall, she took the impression that he was wearing generally smart clothes, though they were a little dirty. It was the best information that the police had managed to gather so far, and so they circulated the description and sent Betsy home, with the understanding that they may need to call on her again in the coming days. Despite William not really being a serious suspect, Constable Thomas Rowley spent the night at Mount Stewart Farm in order to keep an eye on the farmer, though nothing out of the ordinary was recorded. On Sunday, William went about his business as usual and tended to the farm with his brother-in-law. Things were almost returning to normal on the farm, and to the casual onlooker, life had returned to peaceful normality, at least until Sunday evening, when William returned to the farmhouse to hear somebody already inside rummaging around in the kitchen. William quickly stepped through to the back room and swung the door open, where he met with his former maid, Christina Miller, searching through the bed in the corner. Spinning around, the maid saw William, instantly dropped her shoulders and dashed for the door, leaving William standing, looking after her in a moment of shock and confusion. On Monday the 2nd of April, saw the news of the murder hit the papers. Though the information was sparse and in true tabloid form, was largely incorrect. The tragedy, it said, was still enveloped in a great mystery. Although written for dramatic effect, it was actually closer to the truth than the rest of the piece, as the investigation was, perhaps, even more bleak than the papers had made out. Aside from the reports that had came from Betsy, who the police didn't entirely trust in the first place, they had little else to move on. William and Janet's widowed husband both told the police that they suspected Crichton, and Crichton flips it straight back around, telling the police that he himself suspected William. But the police suspected neither with any serious conviction. The house was searched again, but nothing new was found, and finally, Janet's body was removed and transported to her home in Antully, where it would sit in mourning before being buried later in the week. With little other options, the police printed a handbill and circulated it throughout the surrounding towns and villages, hoping that they may get a bit more to go on if someone was to come forward with information. The single sheet of paper printed the word MURDER in huge block capitals across the top of the page, followed by a brief summary of events so far. During the daytime, on Friday the 30th of March last, Janet Henson, or Rogers, was barbarously murdered in the kitchen of the farmhouse of Mount Stewart in the parish of Forgundenny and County of Perth by some person or persons at present unknown. From the appearance of the body and furniture in said house, there is every reason to believe that the party or parties who committed the said crime, must have been considerably covered with blood. With the exception of a large outer door key, nothing has been missed from said house which can again be identified. About noon on said day, a man of the following description, supposed to be the murderer, was seen at the kitchen door of said house. Between 40 and 50 years of age, about 5 feet 9 inches in height, brown hair and small dark whiskers, long face, slender make and thin in figure, dressed in a dirty darkish cap, dark frock-tailed coat rather long, greyish coloured trousers, a rather seedy appearance, did not look like a working man. He is supposed to have had a small dog of a dark or greyish colour along with him. It is earnestly requested that any information relative to the matter may be immediately communicated to the Procurator Fiscal 
or Chief Constable of County Police at Perth or to any police constable. With the handbills and newspaper coverage hitting the local area, the police were handed several suspects in the following days. By Monday evening, they collected a man from Burnt Island in Fife, 30 miles south of Perth, on the eastern coast of Scotland, who had been picked up by the local police on the basis that he matched the physical description. Police now had to bring him back to Perth in order for Betsy to come and have a look and confirm or deny his identity as the man on the farm. They reached Perth at 10pm and Betsy was immediately brought into the prison cells, where, to everyone's disappointment, she assured the police that he was not the man. He was kept in the cells overnight before being released the following morning. Disgruntled, Betsy left the station and headed back home. She was getting quite sick of the whole murder business. Just that evening, William had visited her at home in Perth to ask her about the identity of the man that she had seen and asked her if she thought it might have been Crichton, which she assured him it was not. News that William had taken was something of a huff. The following day, the investigation was bolstered with the addition of Detective Officer James Ledbetter from Edinburgh Police. The detective had been called in to lend his expertise to the case and spent the afternoon getting acquainted with Mount Stewart Farm along with McLean, the procurator fiscal, where he searched through the house and interviewed both William and Crichton. Aiming to dig a little deeper than some of his colleagues, Ledbetter asked William about his reputation with his domestic staff and asked him if an interest in Christina Miller had led to her sacking. William denied the entire thing out of hand, saying that he sacked her because she gabbered too much and made inappropriate suggestions towards him, insisting that he needed a mistress in his life and insinuating that she would have been happy to have filled the role herself. After he rebuffed her, he said she took to flirting with Crichton instead and became constantly argumentative, frequently telling William to keep out of the kitchen. During their final spat, the heightened volume had alerted Crichton who walked in on the pair and threatened William that he would hit him if he was physical with the maid. With his patience stretched about as far as he could manage, William threw Catherine out, sacking her, and yelled at Crichton to get back to work, aware that he had far too much farm work on his hands to be able to sack the labourer. At the same time that William relayed this story to Ledbetter, he also clued the detective in on his suspicions, saying that he was sure that Crichton had changed clothes between the time he had left him in the morning and his return from Perth in the evening. It was a curious suggestion, but it didn't take long for Ledbetter to realise that the atmosphere between the two men was thoroughly dire. Interviewing Crichton in his cottage just down from the farm, he told the detective that William was full of it, and that he suspected William himself, and thought that the farmer was trying to misdirect the investigation. He said that he would never be so stupid as to have broken into the farm, and likewise he would have had no reason to kill Janet. As far as his change of clothes was concerned, he said it was simply not true and that he had changed into clean clothes the day before the murder after he had gotten muddy from ploughing the fields. He intended to attend a church service with his wife that evening and after his return he changed from his Sunday clothes into a fresh set of work clothes which he wore all day on Friday without getting changed. Perhaps the most surprising part of the visit to the cottage, however, had been the revelation to the police that Christina Miller had been staying with Crichton and his wife since William had tossed her out of the farm. Crichton explained that Miller was a relative of his wife's and that she had been staying there until she knew her next move. Over the following few days, a number of developments saw the police inundated with a number of new leads. Firstly 
with little new information to print, the newspapers had taken to filling the void with rumours, either from the local markets and taverns or their own imaginations. And secondly, the offering of a reward of £100 to anyone that could provide information to the police that would lead to a successful conviction of the murderer, an effort that was suddenly jogging memories across the county. One man had been reportedly spotted traipsing through the countryside on Friday evening with his clothes covered in blood, which would probably have seemed like a promising lead for the police, until they tracked him down and discovered that he worked in the local slaughterhouse. Likewise, when a drunk man was overheard bragging about committing the murder in a bar in Perth, police were quick to spring an arrest, only afterwards realising that he was so far from the description provided by Betsy that he was immediately released. Over the following days, Betsy was called upon time and time again to identify a string of suspects, a task that she was launched into with renewed vigour since the announcement of the reward. On Monday the 16th of April, she was called in once more to see if she could give a positive identification of a suspect who had been picked up in Aberdeen named John Henderson, who had already been transported to Perth. Henderson had denied any part in the murder, assuring the police that he had not set foot in the county for months. Unfortunately for him, he appeared to the police to have matched the description and could not satisfactorily explain his movements on the Friday of the murder, only telling the police that he was in Edinburgh. When the police arrested him, he had a pawn ticket in his pocket, which he told the police was from a set of clothes that he had recently sold, and perhaps even more unfortunately for Henderson, it was quickly discovered that he had only recently been released from prison after having served a term for violent assault. By the time that Betsy arrived in the cells, it was already well past sunset, and the dim light would cast shadows across Henderson's face. Staring intently at the suspect, Betsy concluded that it was too dark to be sure of anything, and so Henderson was tossed into the cells to await morning, when Betsy returned to have another look. Staring into his face, she considered the man's features sternly, before turning to the police to confirm that they had their murderer. Henderson launched into a fury, reading off names of inns that he had stayed in at Edinburgh and of names of people who could corroborate his stories. But it was futile for now. The police tossed him in the cells and set off immediately for Edinburgh to see if they could find out what exactly Henderson had pawned and if anyone really could vouch for his presence during the time of the murder. Desperate as the police were for Betsy to have been right about the identification, they had their own suspicions. The hawker's financial situation was relatively desperate and they were all too aware that she may have been feeding them a line. Whilst Gordon spent the day in Edinburgh, locals in Perth were rounded up and asked to go and see Henderson to see if anyone recognised the man or had seen him before. By nightfall, hundreds had filtered through the prison and not a single person had recognised the suspect. The final nail came when Gordon returned from Edinburgh with handfuls of witness testimony that confirmed Henderson's story exonerating him with confidence. It was a hammer blow for the investigation, and as the likelihood that Betsy had strung the police along dawned, fresh doubt cast over her entire testimony. Had the hawker that they had been seeking for days even existed at all? The following Monday, Constable Cummings set out about trying to confirm whether or not Betsy had been at the farm by retracing the steps in her testimony and timing himself as he went. By the end of the day, he was able to confirm that the timings all lined up and that Betsy would have, at the very least, been passing the farm when she said that she was, which to everyone's great relief, gave some credence to her story and description of the suspect. 
With little else to turn to, the police shifted their focus onto Crichton. Aside from William's suspicions and his accusations of Crichton's changing clothes, the police had their own reasons to suspect the labourer too. Several times during questioning and during his interactions with the police, Crichton had told officers that he didn't smoke. But several of the locals had said something quite different, suggesting that he frequently smoked a pipe, though none were able as yet to have given any description of it in order for the police to compare it to the fragments that they had found in the farmhouse kitchen. For now, it was enough that Crichton wasn't being entirely honest to raise suspicions, and after asking around, it soon became apparent that several others had seen him change clothes during the day too, though people's descriptions seemed to vary and many were flaky at best. A cattle dealer, Archibald Harris, gave the most confident description, telling the police that when he saw Crichton on Friday afternoon, he was definitely wearing clean clothing. Meanwhile, other officers followed up the lead on the pipe by visiting the pipe makers in Perth. George Kane confirmed the pipe was made by him, but unfortunately for police, he also confirmed that he'd made them in huge numbers and distributed them throughout the county with no record kept of who had bought stock. He was able to confirm that the pipe had not long been in use and thought that perhaps it had only been smoked for around three or four days. Thanking the pipe maker, the police's next port of call was the tobacconists in and around Perth to see if they had sold Crichton a pipe in recent days. None said they had, but several did confirm that they had sold him tobacco, which at least confirmed that he was lying about not smoking. Still, the police were not able to find any solid evidence that helped significantly further the investigation, and as April turned to May, the case began falling dangerously cold. Crichton finished his contract on Mount Stewart Farm and left the Lindley Cottages, moving his family to a new home a few miles from the farm, and soon after that, moved again to Fife, hoping to find work further afield. All fell quiet across the investigation, until a peculiar midsummer find late in July. On Saturday, 21st of July, Constable Cummings was out on his usual evening rounds that took him past Mount Stewart Farm, when he was surprised to see William waving his arms and calling him over to the courtyard. It turned out that William had been waiting to see an officer as he had finally managed to uncover the lost kitchen door key. Handing over the large cast-iron key to the policeman, he explained that he had been cleaning out the cesspit in the garden when he discovered it at the bottom of the hole. Furthermore, he was sure that Crichton must have tossed it in the pit. Cummings was less sure about the whole thing. For starters, he thought the key looked in good condition, considering it had been supposedly buried in the cesspit for months. And secondly, he was aware that the police had already searched the cesspit on the day after the murder and found nothing inside. When Cummings asked if anyone had seen him find the key, William explained that his new servant's young daughter had been in the garden at the same time and he had shown her the key, but unfortunately both her and the servant were away for the weekend. Cummings agreed to take the key and pop back later to speak with the servant, and before leaving the farm he had another search of the cesspit. Not expecting to find anything new, he was surprised for the second time that evening when he pulled out another key from the pit. William immediately identified it as the key to Lindley Cottages. Crichton had returned it to him when he had left the farm and William had placed it in the drawer. Both men stared at the key, completely bemused by its presence, and eventually shrugged it off, agreeing to bring it up with the case investigators that weekend. Back at the station, the officers agreed to return to the farm on Monday in order to interview William's new servant and her daughter, hoping that they would be able to gain some kind of lead from their answers 
in regards to the mystery keys. The following Monday, Margaret Gibson, William's servant who had returned to the farm, was questioned along with her daughter, who explained that she had been in the kitchen when she had heard William shouting about discovering the key and had gone over to the cesspit to see what the fuss had been about. William had shown her the key and she had, in turn, taken it to her mother in the barn. Margaret explained that though the key had been very dirty at the time, she had cleaned it in a bucket of water, but she had not seen any rust. At least the police were able to clear up the appearance of the cottage key, when Margaret's daughter told them that she had taken it from the drawer in the kitchen and thrown it in the cesspit in the days following the initial discovery. Nothing seemed to answer how the kitchen door key had got to the cesspit, or more importantly, when it had got there, and if the police were suspicious about the whole affair, it was nothing to what the local newspaper printed the following week. The Mount Stewart Murder The Missing Key Found this mysterious murder is again brought before the public notice by the discovery of the key of the kitchen door, which, it may be remembered, could not be found when the authorities searched the house on the night of the murder. Since then, a minute search has been made for this key outside the house, and the cesspool has been cleaned and examined over and over again, by officials and non-officials, but nothing of it could be seen until a day or two ago when it was found in the same cesspool. This circumstance is, of itself, suspicious, and taken in conjunction with the fact that the key is polished and does not bear a particle of rust, it appears as if someone had thrown it into the cesspool very recently. The authorities are, of course, to make further investigations, and we trust they will succeed in tracing the murderer. Local gossip and police inquiry were more or less in line, with the common thinking that William had planted the key in order to try and push more suspicion upon Crichton. If this had been the case, it failed spectacularly, as most questioned why William was so keen to pin the murder onto the labourer, flipping suspicion back upon himself instead. Despite this, the police were actually taking the suspicion of Crichton very seriously, and in a report made up of the investigation in October, he was named as the principal suspect, with only the small matter of lack of evidence keeping him from being arrested. That November, a big shake-up around the case saw a few things happen. William allowed his lease on the farm to run out and retired from the farming life, moving into a room above a print shop in Perth. And more profoundly for the case, McLean, the procurator fiscal, retired due to ill health, handing the position over to the young upstart, 24-year-old solicitor James Barty. Barty wasted no time in getting his hands dirty on the case, which most people had, by now, long given up hope on. The new procurator fiscal re-questioned all the suspects and involved parties. Like the official onlookers expected, Barty's enthusiasm failed to turn up anything new. Until he realised that for reasons unknown to anyone, Catherine Miller, the original housemaid sacked by William, had never been interviewed by the police. It was a major oversight as far as the new official could see, and he ordered her to be tracked down as soon as possible. It was during the day, December the 12th, when Christina Miller finally made her way to the Procurator Fiscal's office in Perth in response to the murder inquiry. Police had tracked her down to a farm near Moneydye Village, seven miles north of Perth, where she had taken up a new domestic position. When asked about her time on the farm, she told the police that she had left after William had continuously tried it on with her, causing tension, which eventually blew up into the explosive argument on her final day, leading to her dismissal. She confirmed that Crichton had intervened, just as William had told police before, and of how she had returned at a later date when William was out 
in order to collect her clothes and made a dash for it when he had returned while she was still in the kitchen. It was concerning her stay with the Crichton family at the Lindley Cottages that really got the police interested, however. Crichton definitely smoked a pipe, she told the police. He had even offered her his pipe on one occasion. She also told them of how he had broken his pipe a few days before she was sacked and of how she had seen it with the stem broken and that he had been using a new pipe during the time that she had stayed. The police hastily recovered the pipe fragments from storage and asked her if Crichton's pipe resembled the pieces and though she was unsure, she said it was certainly similar. Throughout the questioning, the police felt that Catherine was holding something back and so they continued to pressure her about her knowledge of Crichton until eventually, with some resignation, she admitted that the labourer had been acting very differently during her stay. They had been somewhat despondent and low. Really feeling like they were getting somewhere, the police continued to push, sensing Christina was on the verge of letting something go that she had tied up inside her. One night, during her stay, she told the police, who listened on intently, she had awoken to hear Crichton and his wife talking in concerned tones. Crichton was expressing his concern that he would be found out as the killer, and his wife was worrying about what she would do and how she would be able to raise the children after he had been hanged. It was a deep shock to all the officials involved who sat agape at what they were hearing. Two days later, they recalled Christina and asked her to repeat her testimony, which she did, this time with more conviction. On Saturday the 15th of December, Superintendent MacDonald and Constable Cameron of the Perth Police approached James Crichton at Brucefield Farm in Dunfermline, where he had recently taken a new contract, and arrested him for the murder of Janet Rogers, escorting him back to Perth. The cogs turned relatively quickly following the arrest of James Crichton. In the days afterwards, he gave the same testimony to the police that he had always given, refusing to change his story in any detail, including stating that he did not smoke and he had not changed his clothes, despite the fact that the police now knew both facts to be untrue. As far as the murder went, he remained steadfast that he had nothing to do with it, nor had he ever taken any money from the farmhouse. Following his testimony, he was thrown into the county jail to await trial in April, whilst the police desperately tried to find evidence that they could pin upon him in court. Making matters more difficult for them was Christina Miller, who in January had been overheard in town whilst drinking with a young man that she intended to sail to America with her newfound fortune that she was imminently to receive from the government as reward for the conviction of Crichton. Worried that she would flee before the trial, the police picked her up and jailed her too. Three months later, on Tuesday the 9th of April rolled around, opening the trial against Crichton. In the months between his arrest and the opening day, police had discovered little in the way of new evidence and merely had a rough collection of witness testimony that could implicate him as a liar, both for claiming not to smoke and for having not changed his clothes. As was always the way with the high-profile cases, the day kicked off at 10am to a packed courtroom. Sir George Dees sat as the judge and Crichton gave his plea of not guilty. There were 32 items of evidence that had been submitted to the court, including a number of items of clothing and bedding taken from the kitchen, the broken pipe and a piece of boiled egg. William Henderson took the stand first and laid out the order of his day on the Friday of the murder, including his description of finding Janet's body in the kitchen after returning from Perth, which caused him to burst into tears. Cross-examining him, the defence asked William why he had sacked Christina Miller, 
It was an effort to bring the narrative back round to his reputation as something of a sex pest with his servants. However, William stated fairly boldly to the room that she never tried to get into my bed and I never tried to get into hers. James Rogers, Janet's widowed husband, took the stand after William and was followed after by James Barlass, both of whom said it would have been impossible for William to have killed his sister, standing firmly behind his alibi. Barlass, however, did state that he had seen a pair of Crichton's trousers bleaching outside his house on Friday evening. The medical evidence came next, and the full post-mortem report was read out in all its gory detail to the courtroom, as well as the doctor confirming his opinion of the time of death being at 3pm. He also confirmed the examination of William and Crichton's clothes, which he had undertaken in the parlour of the house, shortly after the initial arrival to the farmhouse. Henderson's outer and underclothing appeared to have been worn for a considerable time, particularly his underclothing. I saw no traces of blood. Crichton's clothing was clean, both his outer and underclothing. I did not think that they had been worked in. I saw no traces of perspiration on Crichton's clothing. He also stated that he didn't think that there would have been a way for the murderer to have left the crime scene without being covered in blood. By lunchtime, Several other witnesses had come and gone, and then at 1pm, the air in the room seemed to suck into a vacuum as Christina Miller was called to the stand. There are two beds in the kitchen of the prisoner's house. I and Mrs Crichton slept in one of them, and the prisoner and one of his boys, James, slept in the other bed. James is the elder of the two at home. I heard Crichton and his wife conversing about the matter when I was in bed. I went to bed first, before them. They thought I was asleep. I would be sometimes in bed before that. On Wednesday night, I heard him say that if it was found out that he was the murderer, he would be hanged for it. His wife said it would come on the family and her if he were hung. I heard nothing more that night. Next night, Thursday, they were again sitting at the fire when he said if the murder was out, he would be hanged for it. She replied that the disgrace would come on her and she would not get lived amongst the people. I heard nothing more that night. The prisoner's wife said on Thursday's night he should be careful in speaking of it before me in case I should inform on him. The prisoner said he would take care. I have now told you all I heard pass between the prisoner and his wife. It was a damning statement and the defence wasted no time in trying to discredit her during the cross-examination, painting her as a woman with loose morals. A narrative that was fairly easy to steer once she had told the courtroom that she had spent the night sleeping in the barn after being locked out of the farmhouse not by herself, but with a man that she had met on the road from Perth and whose name that she couldn't rightly remember. The day drew to a close at 7pm with the trial adjourned until the following day in which the prosecution, defence and judge would all give lengthy summaries to the jury. The prosecuting statement was fairly cut and dry. They pointed out that Crichton had the opportunity to commit the murder, being that he was the only person on the farm on the day of the crime. The prisoner had shown that he had no problem with lying, given that he lied both about smoking and changing his clothes. Christina Miller's testimony made up the core of the argument and should be taken seriously, they said, on the grounds that she had been temperate in her statements. The defence launched a fairly obvious case, saying that Crichton had never tried to hide any of his clothing being washed, then that his wife had done it out in the open, where anyone could see, and that if there had never been a murder, it would never have been seen as anything unusual. The defence went on to undermine the numerous testimonies from various witnesses, usually by questioning the character of the witness or insinuating a financial motive for coming forward with information. The fact was, he said, 
that Crichton certainly did have the opportunity to murder Janet. He was on the farm alone all day. But the same opportunity existed for anyone else passing by on that day too. In a clever piece of courtroom spin, he asked the jury if Catherine's young man that she had picked up and slept in the barn with on the night before the murder had managed to slip away from the farm unseen by anyone else in the vicinity, then surely someone else could too. This planted doubts in the mind of the jury and smeared Catherine as a witness all in one smooth motion. The judge summarised the case and sent the jury out to make their conclusions. Twelve minutes later, they returned and delivered the court a verdict of not proven. A verdict that suggested the jury had some suspicions of guilt, but that there was just not enough evidence for a guilty verdict. The judge discharged Crichton, who left the court with his wife and took a cab home, riding away from the baying crowds that still swarmed outside the court. In the days following the trial, the verdict of not proven filtered all throughout Perth and the surrounding area. The story crept through the gossiping taverns as the papers printed their own verdict. Public opinion was seemingly fairly well split on the matter, though the papers were fairly damning in their own conclusions, calling the jury out for taking the safe course. However, by and large, they did accept the verdict. Although the case remained open, it was never solved, and eventually it became Scotland's oldest cold case, the story far outlasting their main characters. After Crichton died, 27 years later, in April 1894, outlasting William by four years, who had died in 1890, a broken and disturbed man. Following his retirement from Mount Stewart Farm, William lived a relatively comfortable life on a large estate, with enough land for him to become a landlord himself. By 1881, however, he was showing signs of mental struggle and was eventually committed to the asylum with characteristics of melancholy and mental derangement. He would frequently steer conversations off in unrelated directions, calling for the police, and at one highly psychedelic point, he became convinced that his own entrails had been removed and buried by an unknown perpetrator. He spent the next decade in and out of asylums, sometimes showing signs of recovery and others breaking down, barely coherent. During his meltdowns, he frequently referenced Janet's murder, and when he was locked away in the asylum, he was sure that the whole thing had been one great big conspiracy against him. Following a stroke, he lost the use of the right side of his body and deteriorated rapidly. Eventually, he was arrested for smashing windows in a maniacal state. His death came shortly after, at the age of 77, in a Scottish asylum. The murder of Janet Rogers eventually slipped into obscurity, the police file laying discarded and forgotten, eventually finding a new audience as one of the oldest cold cases in the entire British Isles. Whether it will ever be solved seems unlikely, but like all cold cases, there's always the possibility that time will eventually uncover a new document or file here, or a piece of evidence there, and the truth might one day be known. So that was the Mount Stewart Farm murder mystery. And there is a lot, lot to talk about there. So we'll go over some of it, I guess, after these short advert breaks. Today's episode is brought to you by Vessi Footwear. If only people on the raft of Medusa had these shoes, they probably would still have ended up eating one another, to be fair, but that they would have at least done it in comfort because Vessi shoes are 100% waterproof. They're basically like a rubber boot, but they look like regular trainers. 
They're stylish, thin, but oddly warm thanks to the extra breathable lining. They're apparently made from some future material called Dymatex, but it makes for actually a pretty unique looking shoe uh, with the added bonus of them being stretchy enough for you to slip them on and off, which I really appreciate. I've actually got two pairs of Veshi shoes and I've been wearing them for walking my dog uh, throughout this wonderful English uh, winter weather. And I have to say, I appreciate them very much after my dog decides to charge through the long wet grass um, with me uh, sort of in tow screaming after him. Um, I also quite like the fact that, yeah, I can just slip them on and off since I take him out at like ungodly hours and uh, high functioning things like tying laces. It's just not going to happen. In those early morning and late night walks, Vessi are my go-to shoes so I can get back to bed with warm, dry feet as soon as possible. Check them out in the link, vessi.com, which you can also find in the show notes and use code DARKHISTORIES at checkout for 15% off your pair of Vessi shoes. Cheers. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back. Okay, the Mount Stewart Farm murder mystery. Well, it's a, a tantalising uh, cold case, I guess. I don't know if it's as much a mystery as it is just an unsolved case, but I, I mean, I suppose are the two the same thing? I guess they sort of are. But for me, this one is, or oh, I, I can really empathise with the jury on this one because it's really hard not to sit on the fence here. First of all, I think it's clear to say that it was definitely not William. There was, you know, Crichton obviously seemed to be quite angry and wanting to wanted to pin it on William but really he was the only person that was blaming William and his alibi was absolutely rock solid I think he's completely yeah the police never even seemed to really seriously suspect him past the first couple of hours where you know they obviously suspected anyone that was on the scene so I think he's completely out of the picture then we get to Crichton and and Crichton is an interesting character and, and and half of me thinks okay he definitely was the murderer and another half of me thinks well, no, he can't have been. Firstly, there's the idea that, that uh, I would be really interested to know how intelligent he was because we're never really told that in any of the um, newspaper reports or the, the police reports or anyone's descriptions. They never explain how intelligent he was. And the reason I say that sounds a bit unusual, like odd to just bring that up, but the reason I say that is he said a few things which if the guy was not the fastest you know if he was a little slow i can see why he said them but if he was like you know function regularly functioning um then maybe he was probably being deceptive and being caught out in a really bad lie and so 
to sort of get like get to my point here and explain what I'm trying to say is he said that he didn't smoke right and he he the whole time he, he sort of said oh you know I don't I don't smoke when it came down to it or this was how it was always described right but when it came down to it in the court his actual words were that he never said that he regularly smoked now whether or not that is the courthouse spin because the defense realized it was clearly incriminating or that's quite a genuinely misunderstanding when the police asked him a question it's hard to tell without knowing you know his intelligence and 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 that comes back a, a little bit again with him talking to his wife and this plays into a, a sort of secondary doubt as well but basically like when he was talking to his wife what if he was talking to his wife about the rumours that he'd heard about himself because perhaps he didn't speak such refined English it seemed pretty blunt you know he didn't have the nuance of whether or not he actually did the murder so he's he's maybe let's just run with this hypothetical for a moment right maybe he's sitting by the fireplace talking to his wife saying I'm concerned about these rumours right because he's sort of unrefined English, he, he might have said something along the lines of, what if I get hanged for these murders? Which is basically what Christine has uh, reported. Now, was that because Crichton was perhaps not the sharpest tool in the box and his language was a little bit rough? Or was Christina? You know, how, how about that? Did, did she misinterpret what they were talking about were they just concerned about the rumors and concerned that he was going to be arrested because of the rumors or were they genuinely talking oh i did the murder because it's not what he actually says what he says is is quite uh it's quite vague in a way and it, and it's a little bit like i say it lacks nuance and that's the problem when she reports what he said either her way of reporting what he said in the testimony in court lacks the nuance because of her interpretation and repetition or she just was quoting in verbatim and his discussion was lacking nuance and being overheard was misunderstood so which one was it so, you know that those two things to me like lie a lot of doubt but then they're kind of blown out of the water by the change of clothes and this is another one that is slightly difficult but i empathize slightly more with Crichton here because if he changed his clothes the day before which he said he did said he got dirty the day before from plowing and he was planning to go out in the evening uh, to some church thing which actually he didn't attend but he said he was planning on attending that uh, and so he changed his clothes into his Sunday best and then when uh, later in that evening he changed back into a fresh set of work clothes so Friday morning he was in a fresh set of work clothes anyway so the crux of this argument is whether or not they changed and no one can give a firm yes or no as to whether they saw him change except from William. And we all know that William had beef. So the clothes thing is difficult and I do have some sympathy because really it depends on people's definition of clean. And now I'm not being funny but in rural Scotland in the 19th century or rural anywhere in the 19th century, people's definition of clean was probably not what it is today. 
And so if he'd put the clothes on clean on Thursday and spent the day working in them, how dirty would they have been if he wore his clothes for quite a long time? Just one day, that could potentially be referred to as clean, couldn't it? If, you know, it depends on your thresholds of clean and dirty. And again, we're not given those details, so it's really hard to tell. But I sort of feel for him here a little bit. The, one, the, the bit where that sort of, sort of falls down for me is the doctor he, in, during, in the court, because uh, he, he, the court transcripts are like in full. He does pull him up and say that um, he, he didn't think that they'd been worked in and that he didn't notice any perspiration. So there is that. But at the same time, you can say, well, how hard was he working on Friday? You just don't know these things. It's so hard to tell without the nuance, if you know what I mean. Um, especially when you read just a court transcript, because people's language was quite blunt and it... I don't know that it lacks subtlety sometimes and it lacks nuance. It's, it's hard. So that's sort of where I can sort of say, like, I, I, I feel, I feel for the jury here. Um, you know, and I feel like the newspaper saying that they took the safe route. Uh, I can understand why, because looking at all the facts, I feel like it's, it's, I, I, I'm with them. You know, it's, it's sort of half a dozen of one and 12 of the other, right? Like, I feel like, I, like so at one moment, I feel like it was definitely Crichton, and another moment, I feel like well, it can't have been. Like it's true, like Crichton's wife was just, you know, washing his clothes outside the front of their house. So you know, they weren't trying to hide anything. It's difficult. And then we look at Betsy, and so hmm. now Betsy saw a man with a dog. Well, I wonder if that was not Crichton. That raises an interesting question. Because if she had seen Crichton, had he seen her and realised that she would be a witness and therefore headed it all off by saying, oh, I," because he, he also said that he saw Janet talking to someone at the door at 11am. So is that him being quite smart and heading, heading it off, realising that she was going to be a witness? Or had she really seen someone and it, and it wasn't Crichton. But, but the thing is, it sounds a lot like Crichton to me. And not only that, she, I mean, she says outright that it wasn't Crichton. I suppose that turns it against it because, because really, if, if she was lying in order to get money, she didn't really care who she pinned the murder on, right? Which makes me think that, uh, you know, it, it, it perhaps is true and, and that her testimony is true. But she's quite a difficult one to believe. And the same goes with Christina, because then we go back to Christina's uh, testimony about what she heard at the fireplace. No one suggested that wasn't true, which I find interesting. No one denies that that conversation happened. So she wasn't lying. I think it, I think it's fair to say that she didn't just make up that conversation, because you could say, you know, she, Christina just made up that conversation that she heard at the fire uh, in order to get the reward money but no one called her out as a liar or anything like that so she definitely did hear that conversation earlier on I gave her the benefit of the doubt by saying had she misunderstood it but when you hear that she was planning to run away to America and boasting to people about how she was going to be rich was she at that point then feeling lucky because she'd overheard the conversation and great it was going to make her well off or had she sort of 
willfully misunderstood that conversation and realized, hey, I can drop him like Crichton in it and I can collect 100 quid happy days. I don't think she was probably that scheming, but it's another doubt. Do you know what I mean? And for that reason, I, I can really see why the jury had to vote uh, not proven. Now, what do I think? After all was said and done, I actually think that he did do the murder. The problem that I have is not whether or not he did it, because I, I think he did. I think, I think there's a lot of things that he lied about for no reason, like the smoking, but the pipe is a very damning piece of evidence. I think that's actually the best piece of evidence in the whole case. The fact that he broke his pipe a few days before, the fact that there was pipe fragments in the kitchen that looked like it, and the fact that he had a new pipe, that that I feel that's pretty damning evidence. That said, there was other reasons for his pipe to be in that kitchen. Like he worked on the farm. He may have like on that Friday, whilst uh, William was out, maybe he just went up and had a pipe and, and talked to Janet for a bit. Who knows? So there were reasons for his pipe to be there, but it's still damning evidence, I think. And to me, like there was no reason for him to really lie about that. Like I say, unless he wasn't fully firing, in which case maybe he did misunderstood the police's questions. But I think that's pretty damning evidence. It's less the evidence that trips me up on either side. It's less, less the testimonies that trip me up. It's the fact that I just don't know a motive. Like they weren't that poor of a family you know you could say it was for the money and there is there was a testimony that uh, Christina saw Crichton's wife have about a pound or two in her wallet I think or in her pocket um, which is quite a lot of money um, but but that the, perhaps they would have had that much money because you know uh, you know he was working so I, I don't think he needed I don't think he would have robbed the house for a couple of quid I don't think he I just don't think that's a strong enough motive, really. The only motive that I can possibly think of, and I think this is even this is quite weak, is that when William didn't have a servant, he employed Crichton's wife. And so maybe Crichton was hoping that his wife was going to be employed and that they were going to get more money after uh, Christina was kicked out, that is. And when William brought his sister in, Crichton mistook her for a new maid, which he said he didn't know it was his sister, and bumped her off in the hopes that he would then bring in his wife. But that, to me, seems like a stretch. Like, that's some pretty good imagination there. I, you know, I, I, I feel like there's, there's no evidence for that, really. And it's the, but, but it's just the only motive that I could really think of. I can't really think of anything else other than it, it was maybe just a, a murder of passion, maybe like, did, but, but why? You know, he, he, he hadn't met her. He thought she was just a maid. He didn't know it was William's sister and he didn't like William, but I don't think he would have killed a member of his family to get back at him or anything like that. It's, it just seems, you know, like he had no reason to really kill her. Uh, it seems... And that, that, that I, think, I feel like that damages it a lot. That said, I could say, I still think he probably did it. It does explain the cesspit a little bit as well. That's like a big mystery, you know, because the police searched it. Well, okay, the key obviously wasn't there, uh, you know, straight away. So to explain that, I feel like 
it was probably on Crichton. I think he probably kept the key. And then when he left the farm, he chucked the key into the cesspit as he left. Uh, that would that would maybe prove that one. I suppose the difficulty with that is um, the housemaid said that she cleaned the cesspit the day after she arrived or on the first weekend that she worked there. And so she would have found the key potentially, but maybe she just overlooked it. Who knows? It's tough. The key for me is a bit of a red herring. I don't think it's that important anyway, because even whoever was holding it, it doesn't really matter. For me, I think it was him. I think it was Crichton. And I think he probably got away with murder there. The problem is it's the motive and I haven't got that. So if you're further along than me and you figured out a motive, let me know. You can email me, contact at darkhistories.com or you can send me a message on any social media. All the links for all of that is in the show notes along with a link to the website where you can find all the ways that you can support the podcast if you would like, including Patreon, one-off donations, buy merch, books, things like that. All sorts of ways that you can support, even just leaving a review, um, you know, that's obviously a great way to help me out. So, yeah, if you would like to support, go ahead and do that. Uh, If not, no worries. I'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks. And until then, take care. Sleep tight. 